This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I, you know, we talk about the, the, the death of the running back in today's NFL, and no matter what you do at the college level, you get to the NFL and you're only worth one contract, and you know don't pay running backs, don't do it. But Brian, is, is Derrick Henry actually a running back? Is he anything remotely resembling a normal like rule that we can use to, to define anything else? He isn't, Luke. And one of the fun things on It's Always Draft Season is that we always look at everything here from an NFL draft perspective. And one of the things that we've been seeing and hearing and, and basically the general philosophy that's, based, that's been floating around the NFL draft over the last several years is that the value of running back, the value of the position is not worth a first round pick because running backs generally don't get to a second contract. You're not going to necessarily pay that guy big money in their second deal. So don't waste that first rounder on him because you want a first round pick to have multiple contracts with your franchise. And that's why we see the run on the position usually take place in the second and third round. Like we saw last year and we saw again this year, but guys like Derrick Henry don't come around that often six foot three, 247 pound guys that can run in the high four fours, low four fives who can run for almost 1600 yards in just 15 games with 16 touchdowns. Those guys don't come around that often, Luke. And you can see on Sundays when he's running the ball, defenders don't know what to do when he's coming toward them. Defen- defensive backs and linebackers literally have no idea how to handle his body type because he's so unique and different for the position. And when you have someone like that, the Tennessee Titans had to keep him around. And that's what they did right before we came on the air here, signing him to a four-year, $50 million deal. Some reports have a $25 million guarantee over the next two years, which that's a good contract for a player who deserves it, who's going to be 26 this season. You figure the next two years are guaranteed. You ride him out through his 26 and 27-year-old season. The contract brings you through the time he's 29, which is usually when running backs fall off that cliff. But Luke, do you think Derrick Henry can be an anomaly here? I mean, his running style is not the kind that depends on speed and explosiveness. He's, you know, he's going to hit the lane between the tackles. And even if he's hit in the backfield or at the line of scrimmage, he's so big, he's falling forward for three and a half or four yards, which means there will be value for a guy like Derrick Henry well beyond the years where maybe that four five speed flips to a four six five. He'll, he's still going to have value. So how long do you see him being productive? Maybe not at a 1,600-yard level, but at a level to where Tennessee would actually keep him through that four years and maybe even another contract after this one. 
I, I think there's a couple of different reasons why I think that it could work in this situation as opposed to a, a, a lot of other situations. And the first one is what you mentioned already, which is that Derrick Henry's a unicorn. He's they they don't come around like like he's just a mythical creature at running back. That's just you don't see that type of player in that type of role. And honestly, just to take it back real quick to what you said about drafting running backs, you could make the the case that. Derrick Henry is why you should take special players in the first round no matter what, but he was not even a first-round pick, so it also could be used to make the argument that you don't have to spend a first-round pick to find special players at that position because he wasn't one of them. So I think also the other thing that makes this a unique situation is that, and we've talked about this on the show before, this offense is specifically designed to do one thing, and that is to make Derrick Henry look like an absolute superstar. That's what he did last year, and it's why they went uh, as far as they did in the playoffs. I know that Ryan Tannehill was the perfect quarterback for that. They brought him back. The offense and the personnel that they have up front at the skill positions, they have a, a solid defense. They have a, a great you know, a, you know, know, ascending coach in Mike Vrabel. These, this team is built to make him successful. And I think, like you said, no matter if he starts to kind of lose a step toward the end of that contract, his running style and the way he fits that offense is going to continue to be effective. And I think that when you look at this contract, the way I look at it, I'm not looking at four years. I'm looking at the guaranteed money. I look at two years. If you can get the guaranteed money of this contract paid out while he's being effective, that's a win because everything after that is gravy anyway. You're going to probably end up renegotiating after that anyway. So as long as you can make him live up to that, and if $25 million is all they guaranteed over the next couple of years for the NFL rushing champion and a player who is as unique as we just explained that he is, I think it's a bargain for the Titans. I think it gives security to a guy who his value might only depreciate from here on out, and I really think it's a win-win for both sides. See, when you, when you talk about the Titans and how they're set up, to make Derrick Henry thrive or for Derrick Henry to thrive in that offense. I almost think it's the opposite, Luke. I feel like Derrick Henry is such an elite running back talent that you have to make him the centerpiece of your offense and scrap any other identity that you may have wanted to have before a player like Derrick Henry shows up and modify your system to make sure it's centered around Derrick Henry. Because we've seen a lot of big power backs in the past who well, Larry Garrett Blunt, for example, go back several years ago, Brandon Jacobs, if you want to go even further back and Eddie George. And those were tremendous running backs all in their own right, but none of them had the same or passed that same eyeball test that Derrick Henry does when he's the rare 250 pounder Luke that he still makes you hold his your breath every time he gets the ball. It's almost like the Barry Sanders factor. When Barry Sanders was at his peak, he would get the ball, and you literally thought every time he touched the ball, every handoff he had, you thought he was going to take it to the house. And Derrick Henry, for a 250-pounder, once he breaks through the line of scrimmage, you know everybody in those stands watching those games, everybody at home gets to their feet and says, uh-oh, he could blast that Mark McGuire home run, which is so unique for a player with his physical makeup, which is why I don't think the Titans and their power running game is what makes Derrick Henry successful. I think Derrick Henry is what makes the Titans power running game successful because there are, there are a lot of running backs. A Jordan Howard, you could plug in that system. He's a big power back. 
they wouldn't be nearly the team that they are. A LeGarrette Blunt, like I said before, you could put him in that backfield. He's one of the better power backs we've seen in the last few years when he was at his prime. They wouldn't be anywhere near where they are right now. Derrick Henry is more than just that power back because he does now in his prime years have that ability to hit the home run, but he's not dependent on it, if that makes sense, which is why I think he's the kind of player who can go through a career change over time where right now he's at his maximum value because not only is he going to throw knockout punches to defensive linemen and linebackers and wear them down over four quarters, but he's also going to run by your cornerbacks and your safeties at 26 and 27 years old. He's a freak. Luke, I think he has a 2,000-yard season in his, on, in his, on his resume before he starts trending on the downside of his career because he's just that different. I can't argue with it. I, again, I think I think it's like a chicken and an egg situation. I think those two things go together, and I think that you the reason you have this system that works so well is because he is so special and so good at what he does. And any any offense, any coach, any anybody who's in charge of building an offense would be ridiculously stupid not to do what the Titans have done. And unfortunately, we have seen too many NFL offenses unwilling to offenses and defenses unwilling to mold their scheme to fit the talent that they have because you know coaches and their egos and they want to they want the the scheme and what they have built and put together to be the star of the show when in reality if you want to win games you tailor the scheme to the talent that you have and the skill sets that you have and i think the titans are just a fantastic example of saying listen we have lightning in a bottle here with one of the greatest running backs that the, the, one of the most unique running backs this game has ever seen in, in a special skill set, we have to do everything we can to make the most of this. And they've, they've built their offense to do just that. Let me ask you this, Luke, in the second round of this year's draft, the Packers selected AJ Dillon, a, a, a good looking running back at a Boston college, 5'11, 247 pounds, ran a four, five, four, I think at the 40, which opened a lot of eyeballs because he's a player who's, who, kind of like Derrick Henry, has some more tricks up his sleeve, you know, instead of just profiling as this big power back. And don't forget, Matt LaFleur came from the Titans. He he had front row seats watching Derrick Henry in practice and on Sundays. And even with a guy like Aaron Jones on his roster in Green Bay, he still was a big part of that front office that selected Dylan in the second round of this year's draft. Do you think there's any chance a player like A.J. Dillon and his physical profile could end up being that type of power back in Green Bay. You know, Derrick Henry was a second-round pick, albeit a higher second-round pick, but still a second-rounder. Dillon, a second-round pick. Derrick Henry was in a Titans system where Matt LaFleur was part of that coaching staff, and they they slowly developed this power running game. LaFleur's up in Green Bay. You know, Dillon profiles as that between-the-tackles banger with a little bit of extra juice to hit the home run from time to time. Do you think we could be looking at a situation where two years from now, a player like A.J. Dillon is suddenly one of the the front runners to be an NFL leading rusher for reasons beyond just his talent? Because I don't think it's like a Derrick Henry scenario, what we talked about just before, where Derrick Henry makes any power running game system work. I don't know if Dillon is that naturally talented, but if he's force fed the ball, if Aaron Jones after this year is out of town because he's an unrestricted free agent, are are we overlooking the potential for AJ Dillon to be a dark horse top three, top four, top five rushing yards guy two or three years from now? 
I don't know if if Dylan in particular is again. We talked earlier about how how special and how unique Derrick Henry is, and that we we love to do this every year in the draft. We love to assume that every draft class is going to give us a Calvin Johnson at wide receiver, and if you don't have that, then you don't have a good wide receiver class, and that's just. It's ridiculous that because people like that don't come along very often. And I think if we're going to say that Derrick Henry is so unique and so special, I think we have to be careful not to say, well, what's the closest thing, most recent thing that we have seen that is anywhere near him? And can that guy be the same guy given the, you know, a similar set of circumstances? I, I don't see Dylan in terms of talent being anywhere near Derrick Henry. But what I do think will be interesting, and, and this speaks to more of a, an overall take on how the league works is that it's always a a you know a pendulum league it's like life in general in a lot of ways you know things swing to one side and then they swing back to the other side and they come back and offenses will will build their rosters and scheme to beat what defenses are doing today and defenses will respond and so on and so forth and and you will keep seeing that happen so as defenses get more spread out and bigger on defense and more physical on either side of the ball. When you see those things happen, the other side is going to adjust to that. So if you don't run power and you spread out everybody and the defense has have to respond by getting smaller, quicker, faster, the pendulum is eventually going to swing back the other way where you're going to say, listen, all these defenses are built to be in nickel and dime all the time. They've got, you know, smaller interior defenders. They've got smaller linebackers. We're going to, start the pendulum back in the other direction and we're going to build to be a power team. We're going to run it down their throats and take advantage of the fact that they're smaller on defense now. And and that's always going to happen as long as the game is being played. So I think if we do see that kind of success from a guy like AJ Dillon in green Bay, I think it's going to have a lot less to do with the fact that he's anywhere near the player Derrick Henry is. And more the fact that I think that the offense because the offense could look at and other teams could look at what Tennessee is doing and say, Hey, let find me somebody that can do, some of what he can, similar to some of the guys you mentioned earlier in terms of Eddie George, Brandon Jacobs, and and LeGarrette Blunt. If I can get close and the scheme can do enough to to get me close to what Derrick Henry can be, we can win a lot of football games that way. I could definitely see that happening. And and if that happens, if the pendulum does start swinging back to this power running game philosophy – we could end up seeing this narrative about running back value start flipping back to the way it used to be, where players like the Emmett Smiths of the world were considered the elite, most important pieces to an offense because that ability to carry the ball 25 times a game, to withstand a 16-game, 350-carry workload, not every running back can do that in the NFL right now. Not every running back is built to do that. The running backs who are having the most success in the league, some of them are the smaller guys who can run and catch the ball, the guys that are going to get 20 touches, but it's a combination of 15 runs and five catches. We could end up seeing that pendulum eventually swing back to where these bigger, stronger, between-the-tackle power backs, 20 to 25 carries a game, now has value again, and that'll make – the new generation of draft analysts and football fans in general probably have a heart attack because of the running backs don't matter movement. But I don't think that it's a far-fetched theory to suggest that if Derrick Henry proves over the next four years, even beyond the guaranteed money, that it was money well spent by the Titans. And if a guy like A.J. Dillon does, in fact, 
have a good career in Green Bay, a 1,300-yard-plus type of career where Green Bay is leaning on him to win games and win division titles. And you start seeing other running backs like that profile, the 225-plus guys, rise up to the top of the rushing list on a consistent basis, getting 320 carries. The league is a copycat league, like you said, Luke, and that's that's what we're going to see, and it's going to be fun to watch. But with success stories in the draft, Guys like Derrick Henry, obvious success story. A.J. Dillon hoping to prove that he is one as well. Inevitably, Luke, we have our busts, right? We talked about it in a couple shows ago where we predicted the five most likely bust candidates for this year's draft. But if any of you have been paying attention to Netflix, which is probably a stupid thing to say because during this quarantine and social distancing, Netflix has become basically all of our best friend. Yeah, what the hell uh, else are we paying attention to, Brian? Well, exactly. <laughs> but if, if you're if you've got that remote and you're paying attention to Netflix and you're looking at what's trending, you're going to see the reboot of a tremendous series called Unsolved Mysteries. And Luke and I have talked off air, and both of us have been watched the series. And if you haven't checked it out, you have to take a look. You have to sit down, crack open a beer or a soda or whatever it is you choose to drink. And just go through these series because essentially what it is is almost like the 48 Hours Mysteries with a twist where you don't know the ending. It ends as a cliffhanger um, where unsolved crimes, unsolved alien encounters, as bizarre as that sounds. But watch the episode because, my God, if you don't believe it now, you might believe it after you watch episode three or four, whatever it is. Did you see that one, Luke? I I think that's. I think that's four. I think we're about to get to that one. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to talk about that. My wife and I binged all six, so you'll have to. We, we do. We wanted to. We got. We got through. I think the first three, and it was like two in the morning, and we're like, dude, if we're gonna go, if we're gonna go to four, we're gonna do it all, and we're not gonna sleep. And we thought yeah. better of it because we're too old for that. But well, wait, wait till you get to the one where this alien, uh, what do they call it? The alien, alien type of encounter came to this little town, and man. It, it, it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't know what I believe when it comes to aliens and, and out of sight. I don't believe this universe is uh, a home to just us. I have to believe there's something else out there. And if you watch that episode, we have to talk about it on this show because, my God, uh, you, you lay in you bed heard, and you're you mind heard it here first, guys. You're going to get an entire UFO episode of draft yeah. season. I can't wait. So we decided in the, in the spirit of unsolved mysteries – Luke and I are going to start a series here every week called Unsolved Bust Stories, where we look at guys who were drafted in the NFL draft over the years. It might be 20 years ago or last year, if we think a player is already being uh, tabbed to bust, and try to figure out like what happened, what went wrong. And kind of like the show Unsolved Mysteries, there probably won't be an answer. It'll be a cliffhanger, and we encourage all of you guys and gals out there to hit us up on Twitter at Luke Easterling at Brian Perez NFL. Go to wherever you get your podcasts from. It's always draft season. Make sure you leave a review and a comment. And in your comment, you can tell us what you think was the reason for these guys that we profile and why they didn't make it in the league. And the first guy we're going to talk about uh, was the first round pick of the Seattle Seahawks. Everybody knows what's coming. Everybody knows where you have to start this list. Yeah, it's the 2009 NFL draft. Okay, this is not ancient history, but it's not recent history either. It's what now, 
12, 13 drafts ago, whatever it is, 11 drafts ago. You have to say it like that. It's t- yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, if you're an 18-year-old kid listening to this, you don't remember. But if you're anywhere 20 or up, you're going to – 25 or up, you're going to remember that 2009 draft and a certain linebacker prospect at a Wake Forest, Aaron Curry. He was the fourth pick overall by the Seattle Seahawks, and he came into the league with just – I mean, he was he was the toast of the town. He was a six foot two, two hundred and fifty five pound athletic dynamo, uh, who the Seahawks t- uh, this term decided top five player. He was going to be the franchise defensive cornerstone, and it didn't work out too well. He ended up playing thirty five games over three years with the Seahawks, forty eight years in total. Finished his career in two thousand twelve with the Raiders, only thirteen games with the Raiders over his final two seasons. His best year from a sack standpoint, which to be fair, he wasn't necessarily dubbed a total pass rusher, but still, if you're a top five pick, you got to bring that part of your game. In 2010, he only had three and a half sacks, 11 and 12. The last two seasons of his career, he had zero sacks between the Seahawks and the Raiders. Um, Luke, where do we start with Aaron Curry, man? What the hell went wrong with this guy? You know, he's one of those those players where it it starts to break down your idea of um, what a Luke, safe before you, before you, before you before you get into it too much here let me just cut you off real quick so the listeners understand how big of a bust this actually was he was considered if you go back in time mel kuyper and all these guys said that aaron curry was actually one of the safest picks in the draft and that's what so, i'm getting at right yeah, like, the like safe pick safest label. pick the safest pick and he ended up being the guy with the steepest floor. I mean, the bottom fell out on him. That's the total opposite of safe. So, sorry, Luke. Go ahead. No, and I'm 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 going to take you back to an article that uh, Jonathan Jones wrote for Sports Illustrated back in 2017. If you followed Aaron Curry at all, you'll see that he's kind of had a second act as a, an assistant coach. He coached at the UNC Charlotte, and he's actually now on the Seahawks staff. Um, and if he, he talks to Jonathan Jones, this is three years ago in this article about why it didn't work out. And he's plain as day saying, uh, you know, the quote says right here, he says, one of my motivations was being able to change the financial dynamic of my family. But if you have a motivation that can be gained, what do you do now? He says, my goal was to get paid and I got paid. And looking back on it now, I got what I wanted. So now what? I look back on it and realize I was a victim of having a motivation that wasn't everlasting and wasn't going to keep me going when things got hard. I had a goal that wasn't fulfilling. And that's it right there. This is before the the new rookie wage scale that came in with the new collective bargaining agreement where where the team the the deals were much more team friendly and they had a specific slot. If you were the fourth pick, you made this much and that's just how it was. It was a guaranteed four-year deal, but these there was a lot more freedom back in these days. So he signed a six year, $60 million deal with 34 million of that guaranteed out of the gate. He signed the kind of contract that most guys get in their second contract after four or five years of proving themselves at the NFL level. This guy got that out of, you know, out the jump. So if you're talking about a guy who was, again, understandably so, admittedly on his part, focused on making sure he had the money to take care of his family financially, a guy that you know grew up and didn't have a whole lot. If you hear him tell the story, it's it's understandable to see how a guy in that position would be like, "Wow, I made it! I succeeded! I have secured that financial freedom for my family." 
And then you realize, well, now that that's taken care of, what is pushing me to be the football player that I am now expected to be? And he realized that just wasn't there. I mean, with all due respect to Aaron Curry, and I get that whole point, but I think hindsight, maybe not hindsight is 2020 is the right way to put this, but to be quite honest, I call a big old BS on that. Um, You know, I look at this and say, uh, what, when a player does in fact reach the, 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 the pinnacle of their career and they get all this money if they decide at that point, yeah, you know what, I'm done, it's over, I, I've, I've reached my maximum heights, I'm not going to really care about the game anymore, sure, that does happen. But the, the, the bigger reason why these guys bust is because they're just not good enough. I mean, they're just not good enough, period. And in 2017, Aaron Curry can come back and say, I didn't have the right head, you know, the right frame of mind. I accomplished my goal and now what? All right, fine. But if you go back to his tape in 2008 at at Wake Forest and you look at how he was a the kind of guy who absorbed tackles rather than initiated contact, how his technique, his tackling technique, he was so high and he kind of wrapped around the neck rather than dropped his pads and delivered a blow. There were plenty of signs on tape. I, and, and look, I'm not here patting myself on the back, but back in that draft class, I was stupefied at all the love for Aaron Curry because I didn't see it. I didn't see a player who made such a high-level impact on the field at the collegiate level and didn't have that dynamic presence as a defensive edge rusher, linebacker, to suggest he's going to be able to hold up against NFL talent. I just never saw it. And what he did in Seattle was kind of what I expected from him, almost like a backup type of player. So yeah, he gets all this money and probably gets to his first training camp and the reality hits him hard, Luke. It hits him hard. I might not be good enough this to ain't hang Wake in this league. <laughs> What's that? This ain't Wake Forest. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a reality check. And you know what happens at that point? He realizes he's just not good enough and he's already got the money in the bank. Yeah, then it's a lot easier to check out. But I'll tell you right now, Luke, if Aaron Curry was a dominant player as a rookie, or if he knew right off the bat that he was going to make it in the league, he would have been playing for that second contract. Let's look at that 2009 draft. The first pick overall was Matthew Stafford. I don't think anybody's going to debate that Matthew Stafford set his family up with generational wealth, being the first pick overall in that draft. That guy's still playing at a high level right now. Now, look, Aaron Curry isn't the only guy that busted. This is actually a pretty horrifically bad bad one. It's a bad one. Jason Smith was a second pick overall. Disaster. Tyson Jackson, third pick. Disaster. Then Aaron Curry. Mark Sanchez, fourth pick. Disaster. Andre Smith, decent at the sixth pick. Darius Hayward Bay at the seventh pick. Oh, man, what a pick that was. You remember that? The the quintessential Al Davis speed pick over Michael Crabtree at seven? And even Michael Crabtree was supposed to be this elite player, and he ended up being an above-average NFL receiver. Uh, Eugene Monroe, okay. B.J. Raji was pretty solid. Aaron Maben flashed, but again, he was a flash in the pan. Noshan Moreno might have been the best of the bunch if he didn't get hurt. I mean, he 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 looked like the yeah. real deal. He but, started but coming this is where you point. actually start to get into the actual good players, right? You get, a, what, Brian Arakpo, you get Malcolm Jenkins, Cushing. These guys weren't around for a whole lot of time, but they had flashes in, in two, three, four years where they were actually decent players. That top 10 is rough. This whole first round is horrific. 
I mean, don't talk to me about horrific. The Bucks took Josh Freeman. They traded up for Josh Freeman. I don't need to be reminded. (laughs) God, I mean, this is this is scary bad. Um, So look, maybe Aaron Curry was just a product of a one of the the worst first rounds that we're going to see in a really, really, really long time. Uh, But at the same time, there is no way uh, there is no way that. Aaron Curry making money and that that was the only reason why he busted Luke. If I was going to try to solve this bust story, I would say Aaron Curry plain and simple was a scouting miss by the Seattle Seahawks and essentially the entire league. Right. It's everybody. Yeah. If he didn't go for you, Brian, you didn't miss. I mean, you know the deal. I mean, rarely does that happen, man. I mean, rarely does that happen. We'll just ignore Tavon Austin. I mean, besides that, rarely does it happen, <clears throat> but you know, Curry was, um, you know, Curry, Curry was, was scary bad. If you had a, if you had to, if you were on the Unsolved Mysteries documentary and you were the closing interview, Luke, and they tried to tell, and you're trying to tell the audience that one or two things, not the money, but trying to put that final piece of the puzzle together around the Aaron Curry unsolved bus story, what would you say was the primary reason why he didn't make it in the league? You, to be honest, and and again, I did not play football at a very high level. I lasted one season in, in an NAIA league for a team that had just started a program the year before. So I was not that good at all. But what I can speak to is the human element of having to come to grips with something that you have worked really hard to be good at and recognize that once you get to a certain level, it tells you you're not very good at this. You're not as good as you think you are compared to everybody else at this level. And what I found out going from a a small high school here in Tampa to even one of the lowest levels of college football there is, is that at every level, at every jump, it's such a huge gap. It's such a huge jump for most people that it's just such a shock and so difficult for for people in a sport that it is very much about ego and very much about you know, having that self-confidence that borders on arrogance so that you can be successful on the field. It's very difficult to come to grips with the fact that you just can't cut it. You're just not good enough. There's nothing right or wrong about that. It's just a reality. So in my own experience, it was really tough to wrestle with the fact that, man, I've, you know, I, I succeeded at this level and had so many people saying, oh, you're so great and you can do this and this. And, and I believe that. And then you get to the next level and you realize you're just not that good compared to everyone else at that level. I think that's what happened here. I think it's really tough to wrestle with that, which may be why if you're Aaron Curry and you look back and say, it's a lot easier to say it was any number of other things than just having to admit to yourself as a person that you're just not that good. Well, Luke, let me tell you this. I think you're good enough, Luke. I think you were going to, I knew you were going to, I think you're fantastic. Okay. But the other thing is this, (laughs) when you, when you, when you're talking about a top five pick, Every general manager out there, if you care about what Luke Easterling and Brian Perez on its always draft season have to say, don't go safe, please. You're not picking in the top five to take a safe player. That's what you do if you're in between picks 28 and 32 and you might win a Super Bowl next year and you need a guy who you can classify as a safe contributing starter to your and that last piece to a Super Bowl run. If you're in the top five and you're a terrible team, Swing for the fences. Go for the guy who has the highest upside in the draft. If your philosophy is safe pick, chances are 
you will be featured on an upcoming segment of Unsolved Bust Stories. It's it's Luke. fake. It's fake. There's no such thing as a safe pick. If no pick is safe, then take the – I said this with Lamar Jackson. I'm going to do what you just did with the Aaron Curry thing the other way around, and I'm going to talk about why I was right about Lamar Jackson. And this is why. When you looked at that quarterback class and you saw all these big names, all these guys, most of whom were traditional passers, you could point out flaws in all of them, and they were different – and if that's the case, if you're going to take a quarterback, even at number one overall, take the guy with the highest ceiling. And if you looked at what Lamar Jackson could do as a passer, it was on par with or better than, in my opinion, any other quarterback in that draft. So he was in that same class as a passer. And then if you looked at what he did as a as a runner, as a playmaker, nobody could touch it. Josh Allen has his own, you know, blend of athleticism and he can do some things with his legs but let's be honest nobody can do what Lamar Jackson can do so when this started to happen in the league and again this gets back to what we talked about earlier with an offense that's willing to build itself around the talents of its players the Ravens did a great job saying we have a unique player let's make the most of it and build around him Lamar Jackson proved the theory that you swing for the fences you take the guy that if you miss you, you know what? You missed. But if you make a safer pick, if you take a guy who you think might have the higher floor but has a way lower ceiling, even if you succeed, did you really win if you didn't take the swing on the guy who ends up being a, a generational player? I hate that freaking word. But but Lamar Jackson is that unicorn that we talked about earlier with, with Derrick Henry. Don't make a safe pick. Take the guy who has a chance to be special, especially at the game's most important position, and stop taking safe players because there's no such thing. Especially Lamar Jackson when there was all these draft analysts out there who thought he was going to be a Pro Bowl receiver, which was the biggest <sighs> joke on the planet. I mean, look, Luke, I want to say I was part of your rallying cry for Lamar Jackson too. So everyone out there, you can chalk another win up for me with the <laughs> Lamar Jackson. And the biggest win is going to be when Baker My Mayfield My coattails are, are getting <laughs> real, like they're tugging very tightly. I can so, Luke, introduce, introduce the listeners to a couple of guys we're going to talk about in this year's draft, the 2021 class. Yeah, we're going to jump into, uh, you know, call it a summer scouting series, whatever. we, You know, this is the time of year where you're, I mean, in, in this state of the world that we're in now, we're hoping that we get to see these players play. Um, but we're, you know, you try to take a look at the landscape. Who is is are the players to get excited about? So we're going to take a few prospects each show and try to, you know, show you what we've seen just, you know, from a, the, the film work that we've done leading into the season, what we hope to see, what we'd like to see improve. You know, we're trying to jump around to all the positions and get some names that you may have heard, some names that you haven't. So we're going to get to three guys in this show. We're going to start off with a guy you mentioned earlier when you talked about Aaron Curry. You talked about being kind of, you know, outside of the group think of, you know, thinking he was a top five pick. And you looked at the film and you just didn't see it. I felt that way when I watched Iowa State quarterback Brock Purdy, who I've seen in a lot of first round mock drafts. I've seen him, you know, a top 15 pick in some of them going to the Patriots to replace Tom Brady and all this stuff. And I just turned on the film and and I don't see it, man. I, I see an OK quarterback. I see a guy who, you know, again, he and he's, he's listed at six feet. I mean, if you if you're a six foot or less quarterback, you got to be really special at certain things or some things or anything for me to think about you having a shot to be a first round pick, a top 15 pick. And and I look at Brock Purdy, I see the guy with an average arm with a guy who makes decent decisions and a guy who's a, a an okay athlete. They, they run him a good bit in that offense. 
but he's definitely not Lamar Jackson running in that offense. I just see a guy who's a pretty good college quarterback, and I just don't see a first-round pick at all. No, he's definitely not a first-round pick. I, I agree with you 100% on that assessment. But as we know, Luke, quarterbacks always get pushed up probably a round or more unless they really show a deficiency in their game. We saw it with Jake Fromm, who at the start of last college football season and during that draft cycle, that summer draft scouting cycle, he was a, a popular first-round name, late first-round name this time last year, and he plummeted all the way till what was it, the fifth round to the Buffalo Bills. So I, I think we could see a similar descent for Brock Purdy, even though I do think he has a stronger arm. Physically, his physical makeup does not profile as a starting quarterback because he doesn't have that extra – you know, weapon in his arsenal, like you talked right, you about. You got to have a trump card. You got to have a trump you have card to have when something. you're a six foot quarterback. You got to have something. He just doesn't have that trait, man. Yeah, like Kyler Murray gets away with being, you know, a shade under six feet because the guy is a dazzling runner. He's going to make things happen. He's going to be able to get outside the pocket and make plays downfield with his arm where he doesn't necessarily have to be in the middle of chaos and throwing the ball over a bunch of six foot five, six foot six offensive and defensive linemen. And he also has the ability to make those throws as well. So that's why a guy like Kyler Murray was the number one pick overall. And it's even at that six foot mark, that's kind of like what you have to be. You have to almost be so special at that size that you're either in the conversation to be a top five pick or you're going to be a day three guy. There's almost like no in between for this kind of quarterback. And that's not a knock against Brock Purdy. I think he profiles as a guy who can go to a quarterback needy team, a team that has a veteran to bridge between the now and maybe two years from now. And a player like Purdy flashes in the preseason, grows in the system, and is on a starter's track. I do think he has a baseline skill set to challenge eventually for a starting job in the NFL. But I don't see enough special traits in his game to suggest he's going to be a day one pick. He could sneak into day two. If he has a big year this year, and he makes a lot of wow, puts a lot of wow throws on tape, which I think he has the potential to do. I like his arm talent. Then you could talk about maybe the middle to late second round or third round as a possibility for him. And if a team drafts a quarterback in the second round, it usually means like a Drew Locke scenario. The projection is he's going to be a starter for that team at some point. Purdy could end up in that range, but I think we got to pump the gas on his preseason assessment, suggesting that he's a first round guy. He's not in that conversation. There's really only three quarterbacks, and we've talked about this before with Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and Trey Lance, who are as close to surefire first-round prospects as you'll get, and I'm still not 100% ready to commit to Trey Lance in that conversation right now. And if I'm not ready to commit to Trey Lance in that conversation, I'm sure as hell not going to say Brock Purdy's in that range because from a physical and just overall quarterbacking skill set checklist, Trey Lance trumps Brock Purdy in every department. <clears throat> so to suggest that Purdy will somehow be in that range. If, if a guy like Trey Lance is the 15th, anywhere from the 10th to 15th pick, to think a player like Brock Purdy is going to get selected within 15 to 17 picks after that, that, that's just not the same football game, right? Purdy's not in that category. He's not in that tier. So I think everybody who's excited about him, is there's reasons to be excited about him, but I would push him more into a late day two, early day three guy at this point uh, with room to grow. But if he checks in at that six foot even and doesn't have any and he's not going to suddenly become a super athlete, he's just not going to be that guy. 
I think draft history tells us he's he's going to probably find himself in that early fourth round conversation by the time it's all said and done. Even if as a quarterback talent, he's more of a second round quarterback. The NFL is a traits league. They're, they are a height weight speed league. And if you have a player like Brock Purdy checking in at six foot with average athletic skills, he's going to end up early day, day round four, something like that. Yeah, that that's what I see. I see a mid round quarterback who, again, we we see guys with you know less than prototypical profiles in terms of their physical abilities and their arm talent and their size and anything. We could see them have an impact. I don't think anybody expected Gardner Minshew to be as successful as he was, especially in a place like Jacksonville last year. But it happens. You know, there. That's what I love about the evaluation process in general and and quarterbacks specifically is that there's so many variables that it's hard to project them. And when things don't go right, there's a million different reasons why. But when they do, it's kind of fun to look at, you know, why did this work out? Why did a guy come in immediately as a sixth round pick and have an impact to the point where they let Nick Foles, who they just paid 50 million guaranteed, uh, they traded him away after a season and they benched him. So it's not that it can't work. It's just that when you're evaluating those traits, if nothing jumps out at you, it's hard to project a guy any more than being a mid round guy with back up to low level starter potential. And that's what I see in him. I can't, I can't disagree with you there. And, you know, quarterbacks need wide receivers to throw to right Luke. So the next guy we're going to talk about here uh, in our three player breakdown is Alabama wide receiver, Devonta Smith, who's another guy who is like Brock Purdy getting a lot of first round love. But uh, look, I might be in the minority here. You are come to Devonta Smith, <laughs> uh, not thinking he is a surefire first round prospect. Uh, I do think that the league being such a pass happy league and the and the trend of wide receivers like this big run on wide receivers coming in the first round year after year, it could ultimately result in Devonta Smith finding a, a, a top thirty two home. But look, I mean, he's one hundred and seventy five pounds, Luke, and I hate to knock a guy out of the first round simply because of the scale. Hollywood Brown tells you to take a hike. Yeah, but Hollywood Brown is in a different class of juice than Devonta Smith. I mean, it's not, they're not even, in the, they're, not, they're not even, a, you know, we're not talking about Jalen Waddle here. Jalen Waddle's got the juice. Devonta Smith is a fast. I think Jalen Waddle is why people think Devonta Smith is slow. <laughs> I don't think Devonta Smith is slow, but, you know, if he's a 4 4 5 guy, Luke, that's fast. But is that fast enough at 175 pounds? There's a lot of 4 4 5 guys that are 195 plus, 200 pounds plus playing wide receiver. So it does, is that speed enough? If he's got to be like a four, three, five guy to justify a first round pick on a 175 pounder, maybe he is, maybe he is that classic Alabama freakish athlete. Who's going to be able to test that well, but if he's not that fast, I mean, look, what am I talking about here? He's going to go anywhere between pick 35 and 45. I mean, we're, we're, we're picking at straws here, uh, you know, saying a, a player picked at 46 is, you know, somehow that's a, that's a, a criticism. It's not. I mean, he's a right. top 50 talent. No and especially, I mean, you're talking about a draft class. We've, we've touched on this before, but look at the receivers at the top of this class. You mentioned Waddle. You've got Jamar Chase, who's going to be the top guy no matter what. You've got Bateman from Minnesota, who you love. You've got Rondale Moore, another smaller, you know, shiftier guy from Purdue. You know, Surratt from Wake Forest. There's so many guys that could go in that first round conversation that if you're that guy that slips out to the second round, it doesn't necessarily mean you didn't deserve to be there. It's going to be a loaded class. But see, Rondell Moore, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe him as small. He's short, right? 
But Rondell Moore, Rondell Moore is is a thick, physical, well built guy for his frame. He's not gonna, you know, that's gonna hurt him being, you know, undersized from a height standpoint. But he still has the kind of physical strength. I mean, his lower body strength is ridiculous. Uh, whereas a guy like Devonta Smith at 175 pounds, I mean, if you look through the history of the NFL, you just look at the league right now, just go across the top 20 receivers in the league today. How many of those guys are 175 pounds? I mean, I, I, I we can go through the list of the top 20 yardage guys from last year. I'd be shocked if we found one that was 175 pounds. If you go back to recent draft history, how many first round wide receivers checked in at a hundred over six feet tall, six, one, 175 pounds who you can reasonably predict or project to say, this guy is going to be a, a, a go-to receiver in the NFL. Sure. Maybe he can be a player that complements, or, you know, if a team like, for example, the Falcons wouldn't take him because of Calvin Ridley, but let's just say a Falcons type of club that already has a, a an alpha in Julio Jones. And you complement that with a guy who's a little bit slimmer is more frail, is lighter, but still has elite route running, exceptional hands, can make plays on all three levels of the field. Yes, that would make more sense because you have the alpha already in place. That's the only way I see a player like Devonta Smith, despite his all you know complete checklist. If he was 190 pounds, he's a first-round wide receiver, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There's no doubt about it, but... As I said with Brock Purdy, you can't ignore the NFL and the way they evaluate players. Height, weight, speed matters. He's not going to check those three boxes. He might check the speed box. He's going to check the height box. He's not going to check the weight box, and it's going to be such a red flag. You know, you don't necessarily have to bat three for three when you're talking about height, weight, speed, but you got to come pretty close. You know, a wide receiver has to run at least a four, five, five to check the speed box. If they run a 4-5-9, but they're 6-2-2-19, that will be ignored. If a player like Devonta Smith at 6-1 runs a 4-4-1, he's got the height. He's got the speed, but he's so far under the weight box, I don't know if that can be ignored. And that might sound silly to the people listening to this podcast. You might say, oh my God, if that's what you evaluate receivers on, if you think that that's the traits that matter, oh man, then you uh, watch the tape, you know, grind, you know, do go back to the all 22. That's the, look, we've been around a long time, unfortunately. We've been in this game a long time. And history, if you don't learn from it, you're doomed to make mistakes moving forward, especially if you're not looking at just the talent, like the talent of Devonta Smith is unquestionably an NFL starting wide receiver, assuming he can do what he does in the SEC against bigger and more physical NFL cornerbacks. And that assumption is one that is such a big one to make because of his 175-pound frame that I think general managers will be nervous to pull the trigger on him in round one. You take a Devonta Smith, who I'm seeing ranked ahead of Rashad Bateman almost everywhere, and you take Rashad Bateman, and I would wager my own personal money to say that maybe 32 out of 32 front offices will have Rashad Bateman ranked higher than Devonta Smith because Rashad Bateman will check every box easily with an elite ceiling. Devonta Smith might have that similar ceiling, but there's going to be such questions around 
his physicality and his ability to win physically in the NFL. Because look, we've talked about this too, Luke. Every player in the NFL is an athlete. Every single guy can run. Every cornerback in the league can run. Look at the NFL combine. The fastest 40 times are always the wide receivers and the cornerbacks. Running fast isn't enough. And sometimes running great routes isn't enough because sometimes you have to out physical the cornerback for a reception. In fact, that's more often than not. You have to either out physical him at the line of scrimmage off your release. You have to out physical him at the catch point. You have to out physical him during your route. Can you trust a 175 pound guy to do that? And can you trust him enough that you're going to spend your first round pick on it? Second round? Absolutely. I've already locked in a first round guy I feel good about. Second round, let's do it, right? The risk for the second rounder is not as high as the first rounder. I'm not spending a first round pick on a 175 pound wide receiver. I, I think the key for, for, for a guy like Smith, like you said, is even if it's not during, you know, preseason or in the season, when he gets into that combine training, can he get to 185? 190 and still have enough speed. He won't be the same speed, but if he's a, a low four, four guy now, if he can add 10 pounds and be a, a, a high four, four guy, then I think you're still in that conversation. And I, these are two different things. I think you can say, this is what the NFL will do because this is what history shows us. They value, and this is what's happened. I completely agree with you on that side of things. I think that when that happens and they do devalue him because of 10 pounds, I think they're going to miss out on a really, really good receiver, a very polished and explosive wide receiver who can hit home runs deep. He can hit them on short passes and making people miss. I think that he's a very complete wide receiver in every way except that one box. And I think when you allow what one, what one thing that a guy can't do to overshadow the things he can do that could be special, I think you get bitten in the ass. And I think that's what could happen if this guy gets to the second round and he gets in into a, into a good spot where a team doesn't need him to be necessarily the number one receiver. And we've seen it before with a team like Atlanta where they didn't need a number one, but they took Calvin Ridley in the first round and he became a huge part of their offense and was a huge player taking attention away from or you know taking advantage of people paying too much attention to Julio Jones he made he made an instant impact in that offense so I think there are a lot of ways in which he could prove himself to be in hindsight worthy of a first round pick but I completely agree that I don't know the NFL will see it that way when it comes to draft day because of that that important threshold that he's probably not going to hit and let's look at Calvin Ridley right we've talked about him a couple times now when bringing up uh, you know, that, that Devonta Smith pipe type role. Calvin really doesn't look like a big receiver in the NFL. He looks like a slender guy. He's 190 pounds. You're talking about 15 to 20 more pounds than Devonta Smith right now. And he still looks somewhat on the slim side. So Devonta Smith is so far below the threshold that, I respectfully disagree, Luke, that I feel like it is such a red flag. But what you said was extremely important to note. The height weight that we know right now is either is 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 probably inflated, 
But it's going to change between now and the time that the draft rolls around because players are going to invest in their bodies for the first time probably in their entire athletic career. Right. It becomes your job at that point. Exactly. You have agents who are paying for top-level elite physical training, and these training facilities, a lot of times – Fans get caught up in the the jumps and the and the 40s and the bench, and that's what these training facilities do. But every one of these training facilities in the packages that they offer these players also has a top-level nutritionist in their facility, top-level meal programs, supplements that these players maybe never had access to to gain weight, good weight. Muscle weight. That's why you see some guys show up at the combine, you know, especially when you're talking about like edge rushers who maybe look like they're 230 pounds during their college career. They show up at the combine at 252 with no body fat because for the 12 weeks before the combine, they've been on the best meal program of their life. They've been taking clean supplements and in a great weight training program designed specifically to build lean muscle mass. That's what these agents pay for, for their players. And with a guy like Devontae Smith, yeah, you might be able to sacrifice some time in your 40. A 4 3 6 at 175 will not be as valuable as a 4 4 2 at 190. So if they look at, and his agent is not going to be stupid, when they hire a training facility, it's going to be pack good weight on and don't sacrifice that much speed to gain that weight. And if Devonta Smith goes to an NFL combine, and like you said, Luke, checks in at 188, 6'1", 188. Now we're talking about a Calvin Ridley. Now we're talking about a legitimate first-round guy. And, and yes, the naysayers out there are going to say, come on, 13 pounds? That's a lot of weight. That's a big difference. Because you have to remember that what you weigh on the scale is usually not what you're going to be playing at. During the season, these guys drop weight. They can't lift as often. More time spent recovering from Sundays. Body weight naturally goes down during the season. So, you know, a, a Devontae Smith at 188 at the combine is probably more like a, a 182, 180 guy. But still, like I said, a lot will change. If Devontae Smith shows up at the combine, Luke, in a 6'1", 168, which is not outside the realm of possibility, forget it. He, his, his money will be made in the weight room at that nutrition table during the their NFL combine process. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see any of that happen. Um, we're gonna get to our last guy here. We're gonna stay with pass catchers. We're gonna go to tight end. This is a guy that I, I think is has a has a huge ceiling. I want to see him reach it. Uh, I know there are going to be some question marks. He's not necessarily the most complete tight end in this draft, but I don't know that you have to be anymore to be a potential first round pick. Kyle Pitts from Florida is a really exciting player. And, and again, if I were a quarterback and thinking about adding this guy to my offense at 6'6", 240, a little bit on the lean side, probably could add a few more pounds. But if you want him to do what he does well, I don't think it's even necessary at that point. If you want to make him a mismatch guy, split him out. He's going to have his way with linebackers from an athleticism standpoint, defensive backs from a size and height standpoint. Uh, I feel like, I mean, he's just that long athletic tight end who's going to be a huge problem at every level of the field, but particularly in the red zone. And if you're a quarterback, you just love having that guy. I think that he's going to be very featured very much in this Florida offense this season. And I think if he stays healthy, 
one thing I look at with guys like this and, and, you know, being a Bucks guy down here in Tampa, you get really burned by a guy like OJ Howard who has size and athleticism. But at the end of the day, his job is to catch the football. And if you're not an extremely natural catcher of the football, you're going to have problems at the highest level of the game. Because like you said, Brian, at that level, everybody's an athlete. Everybody can run. Everybody's big and fast. Your job is to catch the football, and you're only ever going to be so open at that level that you've got to win those contested catches. O.J. Howard has struggled because he's just not as good at naturally catching the football as he is at being a ridiculous athlete. And I think Kyle Pitts, the best thing about his game is that he looks very natural as a pass catcher, and I think that's going to be the biggest thing that separates him and could make him a first-round pick. He is. He's a, he's a natural receiver, like you said, from a catching standpoint. The most fundamental aspect of any pass catcher, whether it's a, a pass catching running back, wide receiver, or a tight end who is going to project as more of a receiver than blocker, it goes without saying, can he catch the football, right? And sometimes in today's draft analysis, you know, the, the analysts overlook the most obvious that usually leads to success in the league. And it's the same stuff that worked in peewee football and high school football and college football. If you're a tight end who's targeted in the passing game, can you catch the ball? The answer is an obvious yes with Pitts. He's got a very good catch radius. He's long, big target. He moves really, really well. He runs like that big wide receiver, kind of almost like a, a Devin Funches type of guy. Uh, I don't know if he's the most refined route runner right now. I think he needs work on that. But again, how many, t- you know, refined or technical routes are you really going to be asking this guy to run he'll be a seam buster he'll be a yards after catch guy he's going to be a legitimate pass catching option from the position if you're drafting if you're looking for a tight end in today's nfl who brings an a plus run blocking aspect to their game you're really evaluating the position wrong because you can find a lot of those guys on day three a lot of those guys as street free agents who you can bring in on heavy personnel and that lineup as an extra run blocker or an extra, as an extra pass protector, just kind of like that extra offensive lineman. Yes, it's great to have a tight end who could do a little bit of both so the defense has to stay honest and, and keeps them on their heels. But you know, there's no doubt that Pitts is going to come into the league and be a pass catcher first and foremost, and that will be his primary job description throughout his career. And I do think with today's game, Players like that are harder to find. They don't come around every draft. We saw it this year with the 2020 draft. The reason why we didn't have a first-round tight end is because we didn't have a true elite, maybe not even elite, a true legitimate threat like a Noah Fant as a pass catcher at the position. Noah Fant was not going to get confused as an elite run blocker anytime soon. He was a first-round pick for the Broncos because he runs like a wide receiver. He catches like a wide receiver. and He's going to produce like a low-end wide receiver for the Broncos moving forward. That's why Kyle Pitts is going to be a first-round pick. I agree with you, Luke. I think we're going to have a couple first-rounders in the draft next year. The NFL is starting to get a little starved for tight ends. You, you could see, When we talk about the tight end like landscape in the league, Travis Kelsey, Zach Ertz, George Kittle, are the three obvious top tight ends in the league. And there's a consistent theme with all three. They all are phenomenal receivers. Kittle is a fantastic run blocker too. But those three guys are can, have, can threaten for 1,200 yards every single season as a receiver. That's what puts the value in that position. This year's draft, we didn't have that. A player like Cole Komet, who the Bears drafted, a lot of people want to call him a baby gronk. We'll see. I mean, his, his tape at Notre Dame doesn't 
get you overly excited that he's going to be that guy. And that's why he wasn't a first round pick. If he was really a baby Gronk, he's a top 20 pick, right? So, you know, you look at next year's class, Kyle Pitts would be the number one tight end in the 2020 draft. He would have been a t- anywhere from pick 25 to 32. He would have been a guy that teams were trading up for as that little, like that missing piece to their passing offense. So his ability to make plays as a receiver, even though he's not the total refined finished product as a route runner, he's got those physical traits to really project favorably in today's NFL, especially a game where there's more space for players like Pitts to make plays off the line of scrimmage, to get into his route, to be that intermediate target, catch and run. He's going to be a good looking player for next year's draft class. If he could stay healthy, obviously, if he gets some quality play from his quarterback, which he should have this year, he's going to be a very productive guy and he'll be in the conversation. First round mock drafts from now until next April rolls around. Yeah. I mean, I can't argue with it, man. I, I, I like what he brings to the table. I think there are going to be probably two or three tight ends that vie for that top spot. I like Brevin Jordan from Miami, obviously Pat Fryermuth from, from Penn state, but right now I, I like Pitts a good bit more than, uh, than all of those guys. And I think he could only, he could improve his stock even further than that with a big season. And we're going to talk about all those guys in the upcoming episodes here of it's always draft season. We'll have more unsolved bus stories, We'll kind of continue to monitor the landscape of the NFL as more transactions come through. Hopefully, we're going to have an NFL season. We will keep you guys and gals up to date on all the latest happenings of COVID-19 and how it's impacting training camps, which are expected to be kickoff, at least are scheduled to, about two weeks from now. I'm, I, I don't know about you, Luke, but I'm not holding my breath. I don't foresee. Nope. Uh, it doesn't seem like the NFL <laughs> Players Association and the league, they haven't even agreed on anything yet, Lynn. They're going to expect players to report in these uncertain times two weeks from now. Hopefully they do. Hopefully we have a lot of training camp banter to go through, talk about rookies who are on the rise. We'll get into some more fantasy football content here in the next few shows as your drafts start kicking off. Make sure you head over to everywhere you get your podcast from. Subscribe to the show, rate and review. Leave your comments here on, on those podcast platforms. And always, as always, on Twitter, at Luke Easterling, at Brian Perez NFL. Check out all Luke's work over at the Draft Wire. Uh, and uh, Sports Illustrated's Tampa Bay Buccaneers coverage. You could check out my Bears coverage, NBC Sports Chicago, my draft coverage at profootballdraft.com. We appreciate you guys listening. Subscribe, like, rate, review, and come on back next time to It's Always Draft Season. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.